Hey folks, this is Ian Foster, and this is If and When, a podcast where I talk to other creators about how and why they do their thing. To start, I'm talking to colleagues, friends, and veterans of the arts community at home here in Newfoundland and Labrador, Canada. These are not so much traditional interviews as they're a chat over coffee or something a little stronger. So come sit in and have a listen. Hello, hello again. Thanks for tuning in. This is part two of my conversation with Sharon King Campbell. If you missed part one, as usual, go one back in the app and you will hear that. This picks up right where we left off. Couple of uh, quick housekeeping things here in this episode. We are about to hit the road around Newfoundland www.ianfoster.ca will get you all the dates and details. We're going to be out on the West Coast in Gross Morn. Also, a show in Cornerbrook for the first time in years. Tickets on sale now at the Rotary Arts Center. We're also playing The Gathering in Burlington, a festival there. Going to be super fun. We're playing the Cultural Craft Festival out in um, Port Union, Bonavista Bay area, the English Harbor Arts Center, uh, Norton's Cove Studio, the Garrick Theater. Uh, where else am I missing anywhere? Um, we're going to be playing a St. John's show in early September as well with the City of St. John's concert series. All the details up on the website. Go check them out. Please buy tickets in advance. We like to know that you're coming. Okay, and now part two of my conversation with Sharon King Campbell. You know all about her from my intro from part one. So let's get right into it. Let's talk for a minute about Sharon King Campbell, the multidisciplinary artist. Uh-oh. That, uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, that um, I mean, uh, most, most artists I know are. Mm-hmm. And this is a conversation you and I have had off mic, which I think is, is an interesting one to have on mic, you know. Uh, what is it that you do, Sharon King Campbell? <laughs> It sounds like something we should have started the interview with, but you know what I mean. Like, tell me the different, the different ways, the different things that that add up to your work day, week, month, year. Okay, um, so I am primarily a theater artist, um, by which I mean that I am an actor and a playwright and a director. Um, I also produce. Um, I produce theater, but I, I produce for dance organizations. Basically, if you hire me to produce your event, I will produce it. Right. Um, I'm going to jump in here just to say right off the bat, this is why I asked this question because you said I'm primarily in theater by which I mean, and then named three completely different professions that in theory you could do 40 hours a week the whole year long and would be. That would be a job. That would be a job that is a title that someone would say. Yep. And it's the exact same, of course, for me as a musician, which in fact means et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, Yeah, totally. And then on top of the the theater life, I am a storyteller, um, which crosses boundaries with the theater, but is its own art form also. And uh, and I write Um, not just for theater. I write poems and short stories and stuff. Right, right. Um, how does all of that add up for you, I guess, um, emotionally and kind of creatively when it comes to fulfillment? Like what, um, I mean, this will sound like sort of, uh, is this a leading question? I mean, like the idea that I'm going to ask you 
sort of what's fulfilling. I'm sure you're going to go, all of it's fulfilling. And I obviously <laughs> love all the things that I do. But is there one thing that you identify the most as? I think that if I could spend like a third of my life acting and a third of my life directing and a third of my life writing, that would be ideal. Okay. Like, um, I really need to not be just a director and I really Why? need to not Why be just that? an actor. And I think it's because, um, it's because acting is, acting provides a total chemical high you don't get in any other of the things that I do, like the performing in front of people, live performance does that. Um, and I like that, uh, like a little bit addicted to my own endorphins, you know? Um, it also, like, I think that all three of them in very different ways um, teach me empathy in a kind of a lifelong way, you know? Like if in an acting situation, you are putting yourself, this is, this is more complicated than I'm making it sound, but you imagine yourself in the situation that your character is in, making the choices that your character makes, which allows you then to um, understand when people make choices that wouldn't be your choices, right? It's easier to get into their shoes, to imagine what they're going through. Um Directing is something that I have been doing since I was 19, and it is, um, it's a, a totally different viewpoint on the theater work, um, because you're its first audience member instead, right? Um, and so you get to be in control of what the audience experiences to a certain extent, um, theater being an ultimately collaborative art form uh the director is the one in charge more or less of what it comes out to be so um yeah so i really love kind of shaping stories that way and then writing is more or less the same as that that uh the sh the story shaping it's just the um experience is very different from either acting or directing because when you're writing you're just in a room by yourself um, and being an introvert in an extremely extroverted profession, sometimes it's really nice to, uh, just hang out in my pajamas in my office and like hang out with my imaginary friends that I'm putting down on paper, you know? Totally. Yeah. I mean, this is probably why we get along, I guess, because mm. so much of that answer sort of mirrors Yeah. the same for me, you know, yeah. because they are, I mean, uh, you know, touring and performing, like you said, is, is a high that, yeah. you know, it's, it's hard to beat when it's going well. It's true. But it, I think ultimately, and I, I've said this for years now, I feel like, uh, cause people will ask me about being on the road and I, I will say like the, the last thing I think I would want right now is to be on the road for 300 days a year. No. Like even if you could hand me the quote unquote dream career, whatever that is, yeah. as if it was like, it's sold out every night. All you need to do is go do the show, which we both know as independent artists, there's no such thing as all you need to do it's anyway. <laughs> um, yeah. that's a fiction, but the idea that like, if you could take away even the theoretical, concerns of being on the road yeah i still think it would ultimately end up feeling 
like a Joe job, which yeah. I think to, to most people, they'd go, this is what a privileged position to come from. And perhaps in some ways it is. But I mean, what is a Joe job? It's a repetitive job. At the end of the day, if you played 300 days a year or toured anything for 300 days a year and did the same thing for two hours, yeah. three hours every night, more like eight hours because it's the sound check and the setup and all that things that go with a theater show or a music show. Yeah. It's your eight hour Joe job a yeah. day to do the same same show exactly every night. And touring is its own special set of like benefits and detriments, right? And that's why you see so many um so many pieces of music that are written about missing their partner at oh, home. I, right? I I despi I call it like folk singer bingo. You know, <laughs> like you'd have a bingo card and you'd be like, All right, if I could just get one more two bit motel and one more bad coffee and a cigarette reference in a song. Yeah. Because all those songs are written by people who do that because their whole life is that. Yeah. And they can only write what they know. Of course. And I just don't think we need any more two-bit motels with a coffee and a cigarette song. Well, fair yeah. enough. But, I mean, it does, it testifies to um, the loneliness, right? Absolutely. Of being on the road. And, like, there's a certain amount of excitement that also comes along with touring and... Um, yeah, and I mean, like, when I was in my early 20s and had the opportunity to tour, it was the best thing ever. But now I'm in my mid-30s and I'm married and I have a relationship I need to maintain, um, which is harder when I'm not at home than it is when I am at home. And uh, I also have, you know, deeper friendships, more, fewer deeper friendships than I did when I was um, in my 20s. Um, which was just, I think, the natural progression of how we relate to each other as we get older. Um, but I miss my friends when I'm away. Um, I miss having my own kitchen and being able to cook my own food when I'm on tour, you know? Right. Um, and that's, uh, yeah, touring uh, Touring 300 days a year sounds like hell, honestly. Yeah. Um, touring... I don't know, 60 days a year sounds pretty cool. <laughs> totally. Yeah. It is a balance. And, uh, and I'm curious how you navigate that balance. It's a struggle that is constantly a moving target for me. Mm -hmm. I know that, um, like what we just talked about, touring a certain amount is, uh, I've come to see as sort of integral in one way or another to who I am, how I process the world. Yeah. I, I'm more comfortable than... I think many on the road, but mm -hmm. not as comfortable as some, mm -hmm. you know, like there's still, there, there's still something that makes me not want to do it for those 300 days a year. Um, but, uh, I, I guess, uh, I, I, I want to be home and working on records and then, but I also want to be on the road and I want to be recording score for things. Like it's a constant struggle for me of, am I doing the right amount yeah. in an ideal world for me of all the things that I want to do. I'm curious how that works for you. Um, well, for me, I have to, other people have to hire me to do some of the things. Um, so with the exception of original, which I wrote for myself, um, I audition for stuff and sometimes I get it and then I get to act. That's my acting, right? right? Um, and even original, I had to... Um, approach a producer to take that show on we i just didn't have to audition for the role i wrote for myself now did original come about as just a completely in a vacuum i need to do this project or was it a case of 
you wanted to act and there, you know, you weren't acting at the moment, so you gave yourself an acting role? Sort of both. Um, I, so when I was an up and coming theater artist, um, solo shows were all the mode, right? Like every, every good Canadian actor had written a show for themselves that they could just pick up and do. And that's kind of fallen away. Um, Why is that? I think people just got bored of of solo shows Mm. a little bit. Um, It does limit what you can do. But on the other hand, it kind of blows open the walls of what we think theater is because you don't have um, many people on stage who can have conversations with each other. So you have to like break all the rules Mm -hmm. basically. Um, So I've always kind of wanted to do one and my storytelling career had given me an opportunity to develop like a full length storytelling show, um, which I loved um, and focused on trickster characters in various um, like world mythologies. And, uh, I love doing that, but the tricksters are mostly male characters. And I was like, where are all of the good female characters? They must be around. And that was sort of the seed of original, was that I was I was trying to build a solo so that once I had built a thing, I could just tour it sometime when I was bored, like when I have a lull in my career or um, feel the need to get myself on stage again, that there will be a thing that I can just put together again. Um, but the, uh, the storytelling aspect, um, kind of took over a little bit and I like, I'm now pretty, uh, pretty happy with how well developed the characters in original are and like very glad that I got to do it on stage. Nice. Yeah. Nice. Um, I was there for some of the workshopping of uh, Give Me Back, of course. Mm -hmm. I got to, uh, you know, I'm not of the theater world, but I got to watch very intimately the process of um, you uh, receiving, well, I guess the dramaturge side of things, you know, and information on the the script in a fairly early form. Yeah. Um, Curious how you deal with and process I guess the two sides of criticism of a creative work, which is the the pre and and post release of something, yeah. they're obviously very different. Mm-hmm. Um, but how do you how do you find taking in that information? I um, I think I process criticism pretty well in general um, because I I embrace the collaborative. Um, the collaborative nature of theater work. So when I'm acting, for instance, and the director gives a note, that's not a like, that's not a, hey, if you want to, could, like, you might consider. That's a note. You follow it, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Um, So it's, uh, you get used to that. Um, And as a playwright, I I think it's because there are so many trained actors who become playwrights that um, dramaturgy, exists as a thing that's separate from editing Mm -hmm. because the way that dramaturgy works is that you get asked a lot of questions you don't always know the answer to them um and uh sometimes it's a clarity thing but a lot of times it's like 
why is this character here? You know, like what 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 are they doing at this moment that makes you need them? Um, that kind of stuff that is designed to lead you to make decisions about your piece without being prescriptive about what your piece needs. It allows the playwright to retain creative control and not just take someone else's ideas and instigate them. Mm. Um, and so dramaturgy makes it much easier um, to take criticism than straight editing. Um, but it has had the impact that now, like when I'm in a poetry workshop or something, um, I find taking criticism to be, I, I err on the side of someone else's right. Um, because of the collaboration in my kind of primary art form. Mm. Um, that it's really rare that if someone makes a suggestion on a poem that I'm going to stick to my guns and say like, no, this is, this is how I want it to be. I'll always try it. Um, sometimes I'll try it and I'll go, oh, no, no. And then I'll go back. But, um, but I always try it. Right. Yeah. I think that's important. I think, uh, it's sort of a... It's sort of a what do you have to lose yeah. thing. I mean, especially in the age of, in the digital age, it's easier in every medium. I mean, obviously I'm thinking of it specifically in music and a bit in film, but I mean, even in just a word processor, it could be something like a poem. Yeah. Where like, it's just so easy to, to copy paste a section, try it out, read it in its own, delete it again. We're talking yep. milliseconds to try these things. And best case scenario, it's, it's better and worst case scenario it's as good as it was before you know yeah exactly yeah it's you don't ever have to lose what you've done we're not throw, we're not actively throwing out pages like you can just save the draft with the date on it and then if you wake up tomorrow and decide that everything you did today is garbage you can go back to 2 days ago and now i am i am curious in digging down a little into that that moment though so let's say that there have been some some suggestions that are, are, you know, more than surface, like they're relatively fundamental yeah. suggestions. And so you're going to try them and you do try them. I mean, how much, where, where, what psychological labyrinth, Sharon, do you have to, to navigate to get to the point? Cause it's, it's easy to say, I'm going to try them and decide if I like them or not. Yeah. But we all know that there's, there's ego and circumstance. Uh, did you have enough to eat for breakfast that day? I mean, subjectivity knows no bounds. So yeah. how does that work? How do you, what's your process for, for being able to get to the bottom of that? Is it pure guts or is there an actual intellectual process you go through for like a major, major edit to decide what works and what doesn't? It's mostly gut. Um, yeah. I mean, there's definitely times when I get, someone points out, you know, that the first big thing that happens in your play is on page 40 of 60 and like that's a thing that you're gonna have to fix right right so then uh so having had that pointed out to you fixing that could take several days because it's that's huge structural rewrites um but it's got to be done and like you just know that logically like you know that once you put this in front of people they're not going to sit through 40 pages of nothing happening right before they lose interest and you can't, you can't lose their interest. Like it's, you're, you're done then. Um, and then there are things like if someone asks you what the purpose of the, of like X character is in the scene, uh, 
um, and you know their purpose, then the challenge is making that more explicit or um, or taking them out, right? Like assigning that purpose to some, someone else who's in the scene um, or making it clear why that person is in the scene to begin with. Um, you trust your collaborators, I guess, and so if you're getting uh, notes from people who don't get your piece, they don't get it I think I, the way that I think about it is that they don't get it because you haven't made it clear. And so if they bring up something that's like totally off base, you know for sure that that character belongs in the scene, but they don't know why, then there's something around that that you need to fix, mm. right? And so the, um, so the, challenge i guess sometimes in in the dramaturgical work you're able to say okay so here's why that person's in the scene and have everyone go oh, oh okay and then you figure out what the actual problem is as a group sometimes you don't have that opportunity and you have to figure it out yourself right yeah right you touched on something really interesting there which is about trusting your collaborators yeah but you also kind of gave a reference to um, uh, if somebody doesn't get your work, that there's still being something there. I'm curious. I think that's a really interesting topic, you know, um, because I've often talked to artists about this when it comes to offering criticism as a producer, mm -hmm. you know, and the idea that um, it's on the one hand important to take in all of the information you can because it absolutely has the potential to make you a better creator yeah. of whatever that thing is. Yeah. On the other hand, though, I have thought about, uh, and maybe this works slightly different for the medium, I'm not sure, but I, I have thought about the idea that, like, if you have never loved any of the work of another potential collaborator, uh -huh. and I just mean personally, this is like outside of the, the, you know, maybe objective quality, we'll call it, of that work. Like yeah. this person could be an objectively, objectively an expert in their field. But if you've never personally loved it, yeah. what value does that then have on the criticism? Because potentially as an expert, they're still going to have good advice. They're an expert in the field of whatever the the idiom of the art is. But But maybe it might not be applicable to you. What do question. you think about that? I think that, I mean... I think that you make the work that you want to see. Um, and so if you're working with somebody who is objectively good, um, but whose work you don't dig, that might be a misplaced collaboration. Mm. Um, sometimes if you, if you get like, for instance, if you just get a read by that person, um, then it is, that person is going to point out a bunch of things that maybe some of your less experienced but more like kind of your people um collaborators might miss like that if they are that experienced and that good at their job um you might get a bunch of useful information and then some stuff that you discard because right. their artistic sensibilities or their artistic aesthetic is different than yours. Well, an expert is still going to spot that your story doesn't start till page 40. Exactly. Whether they're your subjective peer or not. Yeah, you know? and if you're in a situation where you can't 
um, you can't hire uh, like an experienced dramaturge to point that out, then the like having an expert do it is pretty useful um, because not, you know, if you get your your friends together to read your play, they're not they're always going to be complimentary, which is great um, and a totally valid, useful thing to have in your creative process. Um, but they're not necessarily going to be able to articulate what's wrong with your piece. Um, and so having someone who can do that, do it for you, is very useful. Um, but you're not necessarily served by keeping that person around your creative process for very much longer than that. Um, if you're going to just kind of disagree with what you think theater is, right? Like if, if your picture of what theater is and their picture of what theater is doesn't match up, maybe they're not the dramaturge for you. Right. Right. Um, and that's, that's okay. Like there's lots of good artists in the world that aren't the artistic soulmate that you're looking for. Right. Yeah. Totally. Um, the 2017 Rhonda Payne award. Yeah. Uh, you won it. I did. Uh, do you still remember all the little people <laughs> now that you, of course I do. <laughs> did you thank the Academy? I did not. I did not. I did not prepare a speech for that presentation and then was surprised when I was asked to give one. Um, but I, uh, no, I like, that was really nice. That was a nice thing to have happened. Um, it was at the beginning of what turned out to be a really great year for me professionally after several kind of wishy-washy years. <laughs> um, and so it was, uh, talk to me about that. I don't care about your good years. Just tell me about okay. the bad ones. No, I'm only kidding. But <laughs> yeah, talk, talk to me about that. I find, uh, I mean, I'm interested in your perspective on, on on those kind of accolades, you know, because I know you well enough to know that you are definitely uh, most of the artists I know are about the work. You are definitely about the work. Yeah. You spend a lot of time on the work. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Um. So I guess I mean, when you are a writer and producer, you wind up writing and producing your own stuff all the time. Um, and sometimes that goes very well, uh, and sometimes it opens doors for you in the future, but sometimes it feels like bashing your head against a wall. <laughs> a lot of the time it feels like bashing your head against a wall. And, um, and it can be discouraging to routinely send your work to people who might produce it for you, because you'll notice that in my, my triad of things I would like to be doing all the time, producing isn't in that list um it's not that i don't enjoy it but it doesn't fuel me i don't uh i don't like gain professional and artistic uh fulfillment from it and uh so basically i produce in order to show people what i've been working on and it's nice when other people choose your pieces to uh to produce so that you don't have to show them yourself someone else can show it for you mm. uh you talk to talk about what that means i mean i i have a sense of it but i think it's interesting um you know it, it i guess it's sort of like a 
is it sort of like management within music? You're talking about the idea of a producer being someone to shop this piece or to make the piece happen on a, well, yeah. listen, your, your words are going to be better than mine. Just tell me. <laughs> um, so in this context, a producer is someone who finances the project. Like they find the money and they assign it to your show and then they put it in a room with an audience and arrange for that audience to have paid for tickets. Like right. that's, that's their job. Um, and I did that for World's End. So my first play I produced myself in the context of the World's End Theater Company. Give Me Back, I recruited a co-producer in um, For the Love of Learning, and we produced it together. Um, so in a way, For the Love of Learning chose my show, but in a way I also like chose them to co-produce with me right. um and it was a that was a alignment of mandates basically that made that work um the uh kind of the artistic community nod toward give me back was when art when the arts and culture centers wanted to tour it um that was uh not a producer endorsement but they presented the work which is now did you you still did you shop that to them directly though to make that happen or did they come to you i asked them to come see the show right um and then they did and actually they saw it uh, between them they saw it twice uh but the um the second time was the time that resulted in them um engaging us for cool. that tour um and that is kind of the ideal you want in theater because live performance is better live than it is recorded you want your um potential presenters to see your piece live as much as possible it's just not usually doable right um shopping of it to other companies would involve uh, sending an archival video and a bunch of testimonials about what it's like to actually experience it on the stage. Right. Yeah. Do you find that to ever be effective? Yeah, it, it happens. Um, it has not happened for me, but right. it does happen. Um, right. Yeah. I mean, I'm working on a show now as assistant director that is being shopped all over Canada successfully um, based on excellent archival video footage and... Um, some good trailers and some good photos and the um, awesome reputation of both the director and the playwright. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it works the same in the music world. Yeah. It can happen, but it's extremely, extremely difficult. Yeah, and to... it helps when you have the dominoes set up already, you know? This is it. Great playwright, great director, good photos. Like, all of that stuff has to be in place. Right. It has to be a sure thing yeah. before it's a sure thing. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So a producer in this case, I mean, that that's a really, like, I'm curious how uh, that affected your experience with original, because uh -huh. essentially, presumably, you got to engage so much more directly with the creative and, and block out emails and grant applications and possible rejections if you were pursuing certain things because your producer was doing that. Yes, that was, um, that was great. So, uh, I had been working on original for a couple of months in kind of a frenetic way when, um, Persistence announced their founding. Um, and it was very much influenced by, um, 
by the uh, institution of Donald Trump as president of the United States uh, and like a feminist organization that happens to produce theater is sort of how they frame themselves. Right. And I was like, oh, I have a show for you. I am writing a script that is exactly that. So And people say nothing as good has come out of Donald Trump. I mean Right. Well, go. I mean there's always uh every force has an equal and opposite force. <laughs> um so uh yeah, so I had uh a beer with the artistic director of Persistence maybe the first week after they'd announced like they hadn't even officially founded the company yet. Um and I gave her I think the first like six pages of the script. And she's been on board ever since. So uh, that was amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had a little bit of money. I um, I had two City of St. John's arts grants um, to me personally as playwright. Uh, and then the second one was as, uh, well, to, to get the show up. So basically what we did was... Um, put that money in a pot with some of Persistence Theater's resources. And then we were able to produce a full week workshop um, two Octobers ago and then an actual play in November Hmm. that just passed. Um, And yeah, and my my participation as a producer was almost exclusively just giving a little bit of money um, into that work. The um, the I did a little bit of work on the workshop in terms of engaging the artists we were going to hire and um, booking space and that kind of thing. And I think um, more recently I was involved in early stage marketing planning, Um, but I didn't do I didn't do contracts. I didn't do paychecks. I didn't do any of that stuff that is like what a producer does because I was busy um, being the only performer in a 75 minute show. (laughs) Uh, Would you, I mean, would you say it had any effect on the overall artfulness of it beyond it just being clearly a nice thing that you didn't have to do those things? (laughs) Um, It was definitely, I was much more sane than I would have been otherwise. I think that, um, I mean, if I may offer an example of what premiering a show looks like for me mentally, the week that Give Me Back opened for the first time, I burned a pot of rice so badly I had to throw the pot out. Like, I don't function as a human. Um, and it creeps up on you. It doesn't feel like stress. Uh, because it's not like there's anything you can be doing to solve it. It doesn't feel to me like stress feels. Um, because it's not that I have too much to do. It's that it's just creeping up and I'm and it's, worried. It, and it's not like any of the things are impossible to like, I'm saying this because I, I relate to it so much from a period of time where I was making Keystone and making a record for Kat McCleavy yeah. at the same time, yeah, yeah, which yeah. were two massively, massive and massively different undertakings. Yep. And uh, none of it was rocket science nope. in any way. Every none, task is easy. Right. None of it is how, <laughs> I mean, there was a little bit of problem solving, but in like a fulfilling, an individually fulfilling way yeah. where you're like, this is a problem, but I, I can imagine before we've even started that there is a solution. This yeah. is not trying to reinvent something yeah. um, per se, but, but, but yeah, the stress, I mean. There's so much. Your brain it, is pulled apart. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, and with Give Me Back, I was directing and producing, um, 
but uh, for original, I had to be in it. I wasn't directing, but being in it is it's, um, you have to be present, like mentally, emotionally present in a way that um, you don't have to be as a director. I mean, it helps if you are, but um, but you're not, you know, blanking on stage in front of 200 people. Um, you might just have to take an extra 45 seconds to find the words you need in a directing situation, right? Right. It's, um, and so I needed to be kind of at the top of my game physically and mentally. And so having a producer whose job was to make sure everyone got paid on time and sell the tickets was just foundational. Honestly, mm-hmm. I don't think I could have done it by myself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think about that in relation to, uh, and maybe this is a, this is a bigger topic, but the idea of, what you're giving into a project and what the outcome of that project is, right? Like the idea of like, I give me back has done some great stuff, but it's so, it must be so exhausting to have gone through that process Yeah, that it, it probably makes you a little gun shy about diving back into a similar one in the same way. Mm-hmm. Yep. It sure does. Um, yeah. <laughs> Tell me about that. Well, so give me back um, in 2014 when we premiered it, I burned a pot Um and, uh, and I mean, some went, people turn to drugs, Sharon. That's not right? too bad. I mean, <laughs> the house smelled like burnt rice for two weeks. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, it was, uh, it, but it went well. Um, and pretty much every time we did Give Me Back, someone else wanted it to come to a thing. So we did it kind of once a year from 2014 to 2017. And every time... And we didn't, we kept the cast the same. Um, we got a new stage manager in 2016 who was awesome. Um, but even like training that person in was really easy and smooth. Um, at one point we had to rebuild the set because it was made of cardboard. I mean, there's not a lot to remounting Give Me Back. Um, but emotionally it would just ruin me. Like I couldn't, I had to block off those weeks, um, completely. I couldn't be in give me back and also doing something else right? at the same time. Right. Um, and that isn't really how my life is structured. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm working towards making it possible that when I'm working on a full-time project, I can be full-time on that project and not also doing eight things, but it's not always plausible. I hear you. Yeah. I hear you. Yeah. What are you working on right now? Uh, right now, I am in um, I'm in a Master's of Arts program. I'm writing a creative thesis about female munitions workers in Toronto during the First World War, um, which hopefully will be a play soon, maybe someday soon, before I graduate in, quote-unquote, August. August when I'm supposed to graduate. Uh, it should be a play. Um, so that's what I'm working on at the moment. I also, um, I referenced um, an assistant directorship that I have. It is on Between Breaths that Artistic Fraud is producing. Um, and it's great. But what that means is that I have, uh, I have a few weeks of work in April, May, September, October coming up. And so everything else kind of slots in around that. Right. Yeah. 
Cool. Yeah. They sound like good things. They're both good things. They sound like different things. Very different from each other. Which is very Sharon King Campbell of me. (laughs) It's true. (laughs) I am nothing if not the best version of me. (laughs) Well, thanks, Sharon. Thank you. She's pretty cool, eh? Thanks for listening. Tune in again next week when my guest will be musician Fergus O'Byrne. And like, rate, and subscribe to this podcast on all the usual podcast apps. Thanks so much. See you again.